Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Welcome to Bridge Church. I'm Rasul Berry. I'm our teaching pastor. Our lead pastor is actually out of town this weekend, and so he's uh, handed me the responsibility to hold it down and continue in this journey that we've been on through the book of Hebrews over the last several weeks. If you haven't been here, it's been an incredible series. You can check out the podcast, both in SoundCloud or iTunes, and, and I'd encourage you to journey with us. But For the last several weeks, we've been kind of just going through this aspect of of, of hearing and understanding what this author was writing to this congregation in the first century. They were Jewish Christians who were being very much just uh, pressured and they were struggling to keep their faith. Because you see, the Roman Empire in which they lived and dwelled looked down upon them because of their Jewishness, both based on their ethnicity and based on their faith. It was something that was looked down upon, was mocked even, and sneered at. But in addition to Rome, they had the additional challenge of also being maligned and also being misunderstood and also being rejected by their own country people because their faith that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they had this double whammy of pressure on them. In fact, people were lost homes, people, you know, just experienced all sorts of oppression on the job and just ridicule. And so there was a temptation in light of this pressure that they were feeling to shrink back from faith in Jesus. And so they were being reminded, oh, Jesus is all we got. (laughs) I know you feel like you're losing a lot, but... Jesus is all we got. And so he systematically unpacks that for 10 chapters. Jesus is all we got. Until we get to this point in chapter 11, and then this is the turning point in this letter, in this book. And I kind of liken it to when I think about the moment of like when I got my driver's license. Anybody here got their driver's license? So some of y'all can relate to this. Because you see... In order to get a driver's license, it's a two-part process. What's the first part? What you got to get? You got to get your learner's permit. And so what you do, some of us studied for the test. Some of us didn't. Lord, help us on the road. And so what you do is you study and you learn the rules of how to drive. The book tells you what that red octagon, hexagon, octagon, octagon. Thank you. Okay, there we go. The red octagon that says S-T-O-P, it tells you what to do when you get to there, to that spot. But it also tells you what to do when you get to a yellow, which some of us still don't really listen to, but, you know, we go through that thing. What those do, what, what's the difference between the dotted white line in the middle of the street and the solid white line? It gives you those explanations. And once you get that, and I remember studying a little bit, getting the test, passing the test, and then you get your... No, you don't get your license yet. You get your learner's permit first. And your learner's permit just means that you have been given permission to actually drive in the car with an actual driver so you can learn how to actually drive. See, what they understand 
is that there's a difference between theory and practice. And I remember when I got my driver's permit, my learner's permit, and uh, now I don't know about y'all, but my, my parents was like, we're not going through the trauma of trying to teach you how to drive, so you're going to go to a driving school, anybody, you know, through that type of situation. So the guy from the driver's school comes to the house, gets out the car, hands me the keys, and is like, okay, your turn. So I get in the car, and actually, you know, I had driven around the parking lot and around the block a little bit, so it wasn't that intimidating at first. I knew my situation. I knew my surroundings. It was comfortable. It was, you know, a little bit nervous because I'm still behind the wheel of this car with this stranger, but, I mean, mostly I'm good. And then we start to go a little bit further out from my neighborhood where I was familiar with. And then he tells me to make this left-hand turn, and I was like, wait, hold on. See, if I make that left-hand turn, I am merging onto the highway where peak cars are going 60, 70, 80 miles an hour. Are you sure you want to put your life and my life into that situation? He's like, yes. I said, like, I mean, should we do that like the second or third time? He's like, no, this is what I do when we take out someone for the first time. We go on the highway. And all of a sudden, as I'm grabbing that wheel, I am feeling the difference between theory and practice. And so the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, he is giving us a deep dive into theory. He said, this is the context of faith. This is what it means. Now go make that left-hand turn. And see, the thing is, it gets different. It gets real, real when all of a sudden we can come in here and listen and celebrate and sing. But then when we go through those double doors out into the world and Jesus tells us to make a left at our job, at our house, now all of a sudden it gets real. And as we hold on to, those, to that steering wheel, we have to believe and trust, what does it look like for me to live a life that's pleasing to God? What does that mean? What does it feel like? And what it means is what we're going to get into today. Is that all right? Yes. Because what essentially the author is writing about is how can I live a life pleasing to God? That's really what this comes down to. What does it mean? What, what, what's, the, what's the requirements? What's, what, what does it take? And essentially... In this chapter, using very practical experience, he answers that question essentially in two words. Two words that we see over and over again. By faith. That's how we do it. That's what it looks like. These two words reveal the plot line that God is telling in the entire story of Scripture and especially in the story of our lives. In my life, in your life, will you live by faith? Now, this letter was meant to be read in community. So I'm going to do something different than how we normally do where we kind of break up the verses. I'm going to read the first 13 verses all the way through so we can kind of sit where these first century Christians sat as they were experiencing this pressure because many of us feel this pressure. Many of us live in a context where people look and mock and sneer at this faith. Many of us live in a place where people are, where we feel the double tension, both not feeling welcome maybe in our home or welcome in the culture. And in the light of that, I want this to, these words to wash over us like it washed over them. So when you see this phrase, by faith, I'm a point, and I want you to say, by faith. One, two, three. By faith. Okay, when, you, when we read that. Or when you simply read the word faith, the same thing. Y'all ready? Here we go. Let's try it. 
now is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word, and may we respond by faith. Well, we're going to break down a little bit of this, not all of those passages but based on that reading, I'm sure you can see what the theme of this talk is. By faith, that's the theme of the yeah, is it? Now, in the first two verses, he actually explains what this concept is. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. It's, it's, he's making this statement that essentially... Gets, it couldn't get lost because essentially faith is confidence in that which I cannot see. Now, back in that time, as the readers who were reading this, you got to remember in the Greco-Roman world, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates were considered the standard of what truth and what it meant to be knowledgeable and, and thoughtful and educated. Philosophy, science. These were the things that people depended upon as knowledge. So the idea that someone would live their life based on something that they could not prove or could not see was seen as foreign and even foolish. But on top of that, they were willing to die for this faith. That just seemed just crazy. Not that that's something we can't relate to in our time. 
But the reality is that what he's saying here then is that in spite of the culture to the contrary, in spite of what other people would say, this is the actual essence of what it means. And the interesting thing is, depending on the translation that you'll look at, this word assurance, the assurance of things hoped for, may also be translated confidence, reality, and substance. And this is what he's saying, essentially, in this word, it's saying that there's a reality, there's a, there's a, a just as physical, tangible reality of how this world works, and that is that God is a God who responds to our faith. That's truth that, that you can hang your hat on, that you can sit down and trust in, that you can hold on to the steering wheels of your life knowing that Jesus is actually in control. It's a fundamental fact of existence and what it means for us to be in relationship with God is to trust. But here's the thing, that this actual passage is not simply about us. The, 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 the miraculous, amazing thing about this faith that he's declaring is not simply that faith is our confidence in God, but that faith is also God bearing witness to us. Faith is the confidence that not only do we bear witness to God, but that God will bear witness to us, that he actually will respond to our faith. And in that sense, he is flexing and flossing on all the philosophies around them and saying, but we have a God who actually responds to when we put faith in him. He actually acts. It's not just something that goes up in the clouds. Your prayers don't just hit the ceilings and come down. That They actually engage a God who listens, who hears, and who cares. And that this is something that should actually cause us to change the way that we live our lives. And so he lays the foundation of that in verse 3. And now he says, okay, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. In order for all things to be possible, then there had to be a God who created all things, so therefore had control and power over those things. Now, the interesting thing is really, it always takes faith to believe in how the world came here because none of us was here at the time. But the interesting thing that people often forget is that it not only takes faith to believe that God created the world, it takes more faith to believe that he didn't. So you mean to tell me that design got here by accident? That even the laws of physics say that matter can't spontaneously be created, but yet matter is all the way here, and you have no answer for that. But God says, I spoke and it existed. And here's the thing that he's trying to say. What I believe about how we got here reveals who or what I put my faith in. But either way, you're putting your faith in something because guess what? We can't put the creation of the world in a, set, in a lab and recreate it. So everybody is putting their faith in something as the answer. The question is just, are you putting your faith in yourself, in your reason, or in God himself? That's just with the question of the faith. But that's a sermon for another day. But after he gets into creation, then he starts to go back right there into the Genesis account from Genesis chapter 4. And he goes from there, by faith, Abel offered a sacrifice. By faith, Enoch trusted God. By faith, Noah built an ark to prepare for an event that the world had never seen before called a flood. <laughs> I can just imagine God coming to Noah like, all right, I'm gonna need you to build this ark because it's going like rain's gonna come and it's gonna be a flood. And it's like, so you need to be in the ark in order to be saved from the flood. He like, flood, how do you spell that? And rain, like, 
would that mean again? Like, like all of, imagine having to prepare for a catastrophic event that you never had seen before. That's Noah and then Abraham and Sarah, all of these things by faith. And so throughout the, this chapter, and I wish we had time to go into all of them. We don't now, but I would encourage you in your own times this week, Go back and look at the references of these stories. Download a Bible app and just look at their names. Just do a search for Abel, do a search, and you can find their stories and see the details. But after all of that, he goes into verse 6, which is his thesis statement for the entire chapter. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. How do we please God? How do we live a life that's pleasing to God? Well, he makes it clear that without faith, it's impossible. But not only that, but he, then he clarifies and he breaks down what he exactly means by that faith. Okay, because, all right, if I'm going to draw near to God, then I got to believe that he exists, right? But, I, but that's not enough. It's not enough to have some vague, generic hope in the universe to come back and bless me in some karmic sense of the word of reality. Maybe if I do something, it may come back. Like, that, that, that's not what this is. This is actually saying something much more personal, much more real, much more direct. It's actually saying that there's two choices that are before us. Either there is no God and everything is meaningless. We're just here by accident, random, and life has no meaning. Truth has no meaning. No such thing as justice. No such thing as right and wrong. There's that option. Or there's a God who actually created us, cares about us, and wants to be in relationship with us. And I must then align my life to him. Because see, the problem is we can live as practical atheists. If I believe that God exists, but he don't really get involved or respond to my desire to seek him, then I'm off the hook to just still live functionally as if there is no God, or better yet, that I am the God that I am serving. The author specifies, no, 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 I, I, you believe that God exists, but you also have to believe that he rewards those who seek him. And that's where it gets us right there in our seats, meets us right in our challenges in life. This is how the author, one of my favorite authors, wrote my utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers. This is what he had to say. Faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. Oh, man, Oswald was on to something here. See, what he's saying is too often, and as a pastor and, and been in a ministry for years, I see this all the time. People have a view of God that really says, I, I'm really putting, I, I have certain goals and I have certain expectations about my life. And I, I hear that there's this God thing. I pray and I read and I kind of do some serving. I, I write, I send a little money off. And, and then if I do those things that God is going to do for me what I want, that, that if, I, if I just rub the lamp, out comes the genie who says, Master, you have three wishes. What do you desire? And that God is contractually obligated to respond to my needs and my requests based on the fact that I am putting faith in him. And that really isn't faith in God. That's faith in my deliverance. 
That's just hope that, you know, and what ends up happening is what that really reflects is the fact that I am the God because I am thinking that I know what's best for me. And if God doesn't do what's best for me, then I no longer have to serve him. But Oswald says, he breaks it down, says, faith means that whether I am visibly delivered or not, we're going to get into why he uses that word visibly, I will stick to my belief that God is love and that there are some things that are only learned in the furnace. Some of us know what that means. Some of us had some things that had we got what we wanted, we would not even be as close to God as we are now because it was through the pain, it was through the rejection, it was through the nose, it was through the isolation, it was through sitting there crying out on my knees, pleading to God that God formed in me the person that I am today. That actually wouldn't have come if I'd have got my way. But the reality is if I'm rubbing the lamp asking God, then really who's serving who? Jeannie called Aladdin master. But Jesus is Lord. We're supposed to call him master. Faith is not abstract, but it's the confidence that God sees, hears, cares, and responds to us, even if we don't understand or prefer his response. I had to preach this to myself this week. Like, you know, if you could kind of rate, like, your own weeks of life, this would be, like, the top five worst weeks in my life. And you talk about a scenario in which you're like, okay, what does it mean if I don't understand what God is doing or I don't prefer his response? Do I still have faith and confidence that God knows what he's doing? that he cares about me and that he's going to respond in some way, somehow. That's the nature of faith. But the challenge is that oftentimes in our culture, we've created and and we've imbibed and we believe this distorted version of faith that either believes that God is a genie that does what we want or that is so determined by my feelings that that then is the explanation of what faith is. And if I feel like coming to church, if I feel like worshiping him, if I feel like opening my word, if I feel like obedience, then I'll do it. But if I don't, well, you know, I just wasn't feeling it. But the reality is faith is not a feeling. Came upon this concept in this book written with the same title by this author named Nay Bailey. And you ever read a book and you just already know, like, oh, Lord, this is going to hit me just from the title. And in the explanation, she explains and breaks this down, and there's a scenario that is unfolded where there, there was someone that came to the famous preacher D.L. Moody from like Bible, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. It was a famous preacher, and he was worried that he wasn't saved. He, he didn't know Jesus. That he was con- concerned about whether he was his salvation, and he came to D.L. Moody, and he, and he said, I don't feel like I'm saved. And Moody asked him, was Noah safe in the ark? Certainly he was, the man replied. Moody then responds, what what made him safe, his feelings or the ark? Our faith is not based on our emotional response to our circumstances. 
It's based not even on the fact that we have faith. Like some people just think, oh, that's cool that you believe in something. That, like that has merit and honor in and of itself. But the reality is the merits of faith is the object of the faith. Who am I trusting in? Because I can trust in something that will let me down. Many times I have. There's no honor in that in and of itself, but when I put my faith in the one in whom actually created the universe and cares about me, now I'm on to something. But the last part about this definition of faith is not a feeling. It is an action. And that is why this whole chapter, when you look at it, when you read it, it's framed in this aspect. Look, by faith, this person did this action. It wasn't This person just had faith and we don't know what they did or what. Like faith manifests itself in what we do in the very circumstances and situations of life in which it is the most difficult to actually live it out. Faith looks like something. And so he goes down this list and he goes down these honors. he, he, He reminds them of their history. Remember, these are Jewish Christians. So he's saying, this is your history that I'm telling you about. This is how you got here. This is your story. These are your people. This is your flesh and blood. And oftentimes we have to know and understand the story of our people so we don't frame our current, circumstance, our current feelings based in the moment. If I just woke up in, in, in 2019 and turned on the news and saw what was going on, I'd be like, Lord, we got no hope. What is going on? This is crazy. People saying what's wrong is right, right is wrong. Like, and something happened and it didn't, call it fake news, all of that. And it's like, I would have, I'd be like kind of hopeless. But I have to go back and realize, well, my story doesn't start here. You see, 1619, the first enslaved Africans came over into these shores 400 years ago. And there's a story, that song we sang, We Come This Far By Faith was a song that even during the civil rights movement, people looked back upon, and they looked back on this situation of slavery, looked back and said, just 100 years ago, we were in bondage, and look at how far we've come by faith. And so now I can trust, based on what already has happened, what God is already going to do now. And we have to put ourselves in the context of that story, and this is what this author does. And fast-forwarding just to the one that he spends the most time on, the one that is called the father of the faith. Y'all remember that song some of y'all sang in Sunday school? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. Bring it back, bring it back. <laughs> I, I knew some of y'all would know that. I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't know that song from like a child, but I got it now. And so he, fo- he focuses his time on Abraham, and this is what it says. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And then it adds, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He says, okay. Your identity as a Hebrew people starts at this point. Now, I'm just going to take us briefly back to that moment in Genesis chapter 12 that the author of Hebrews is alluding to. And at the time, his name hadn't been changed by God to Abraham, yet it was still Abram, which meant exalted father. 
And this, by this point alone, his name was a kind of a source of shame because he was an ex- called exalted father, and yet he and his wife were barren and had no children. And he was 75 years old. Kind of time had kind of moved on, it would seem. And this is what we find in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, we got to see why this was such a weighty thing. Can't just go for it. At this time, in this era, in this society, in the ancient times, it, it says from your country you should go and this was a time, it might be hard for us to picture this, but oftentimes in cultures, people didn't look fun, uh, kindly upon uh, immigrants. I know that might be hard for us to imagine, but <laughs> there's a time in which like coming from a foreign land and coming from a different place and, you know, that would look, you'd be looked upon with scrutiny, disdain, and it was actually like unsafe for you to go there because people might just take advantage of you because you weren't nobody's people. So they knew if they got you that nobody was going to come and, and, and retaliate on your behalf and you would just be there by yourself. I know we can't understand a picture that, but there was a time. And so God tells them, go from your country and leave. Then he says, from your kindred and your father's house. Now, this was a patriarchal society in which power, wealth was actually transmitted from a father to a son. And he's saying, when he says, look, go from your country, that means like, not just like go to like the next state, like, like leave the country, go far away. And this was not a time in which you could cash app, Venmo, Facebook money, somebody like, it was like by leaving, that meant he was leaving an inheritance. It meant he was leaving his wealthy father and all of what he had coming to him as a, as a heir to the, his estate. And God says, go now. So he says, okay, I'm going to be your safety, your protection. God says, I'm going to be your provision. But then, just in case you think, you know, because you know how we do. Like, we kind of evaluate and kind of go, well, you know, maybe I can work this situation out because there are opportunities there. So, like, maybe this is a good landing spot for me. Like, it's a, it's a level up situation. And he says, look, I'm not even going to tell you where you're going. You can't even look on the bright side and, like, kind of find the perks of it and kind of reason your way through it. I'm just going to tell you to keep walking until I say stop. And when I say stop, that's where you're going to be. And he says, and lastly, I will make your name great. I'll make your name a blessing that this ain't about you. This is about the generations coming. So this is what he tells Abraham. And why, what would make someone take such a bold risk, take such a, a, a huge step and leave everything behind? Well, it explains it in verse 10. It says, now he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. It was like his expectation and his hope was all of a sudden he went, his father, Abraham's father, we know his name was Terah, which meant Terah, which was a moon god that he worshipped. They were pagans. They didn't worship God. So God revealing himself to this person came out the blue. Some of us are in situations where we may be the only one we know that are trying to walk with God. Abraham can relate to that. Because he was like, yo, that was me. I like left that. And, you know, you explain. So like, what happened was like the God like of the universe, like, like I'm going to be in relationship with him. So like he told me to leave. And they're looking at you like, so like, so where, where are you going to work again? Like, 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 it's just like, you know, it's just not getting there. But he's like, I, I have an expectation and I have a hope. And that, that hope and that city that he's talking about is not on earth, but ultimately I'm seeking God. 
I want to go to the place where God is going to be, and I'm trusting him for that. And then the author continues in verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. There's this mutual thing, remember, that he's saying, look, don't be ashamed to recognize God. I know that it might cause you some uh, alienation. I know some of you, 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 you might get some mockery because of what you believe, but, but don't be ashamed of God because he's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you, and you know you've not always held up. <laughs> you've fallen sometimes. You've been some places. You've done some things. And he's like, but as long as you trust God, he's not going to be ashamed of you. And that he has a city prepared on your behalf where he is the mayor. A city where the trains run on time. <laughs> on a Sunday, going from Manhattan to Brooklyn. Amen. Oh, so the question, though, is many of us have looked at city, uh, New York as a city of uh, our hopes, our dreams, our expectations, and that's all fine and good. But the key question is, which city are you representing? Which city has your affection as the city that you stamp, you put on your chest, like this is who I, this is who I belong to? Now, Abram made it clear. I mentioned he was 75 when he went out on this journey when God told him that he was going to bless him, that through his seed he was going to be the father of nations. We see him experience the covenant in chapter 15. It takes 25 years and a lot of drama in between for them to actually receive. So by the time he becomes a dad, he's 100 years old. Sarah is 90. This is truly a miracle because time had passed him by, both of them. And in the midst of that, it's like all good. Like, yo, in this story, this is dope. Like, I saw God work. And then this crazy thing happens in chapter 22. Isaac is about 15 years old. And we see the author of Hebrews summarize this in 17, 18. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And who, he who he had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The author is bringing us to the tension. He's like, wait a minute. So God one day wakes up Abram, Abraham now, his name has been changed, and says, okay, now you know that boy that I said I was going to make you a blessing to the nations, that one that I said you, I would make your, you know, your offspring as numerous as the sand in the seashore? I want you to go up to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice sacrifice him for me. Now, at this point, Abraham had put in all his chips with God. Like, he, there was nothing left. Like, he's 100. He's, like, looking at the end of his life. And now you want me to actually sacrifice and slay the son that you told me was going to be the son of promise. I mean, do you, I, I left everything. I, I came. I trusted you. What are you doing? Why would you want me to sacrifice my dream? Have you ever been there where it seems like God is asking you to sacrifice your dream. Have you ever felt like that? I know I have. You see things and circumstances in your life, and you go, wait a minute, this ain't what I signed up for, God. Like, I don't understand how, like, why would you tell, like, doing it your way would actually cancel the opportunity that I thought that life was about. Well, 
how did Abraham get around that? Because it says that he did it. Well, this is, explains it. It says he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Yo, this is crazy. If you go back, and we ain't got time to go into the story, but if you look back at Genesis 22, he tells his servants, me and the boy are going up to the mountain to worship, to sacrifice, and we'll be back. And it's like, and even the son, you know, he's coming up, and he's like, yo, we've done worship before, sacrifice. He's like, yo, dad, where's the, um, he got the wood on his shoulders, about to build the, 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 the altar. And he's like, hey, dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham is like, God will provide. They get up to the top of the mountain, and then he puts Isaac on the altar, and he holds the knife up ready to slay his only son. And the angel at that point says, wait, Abraham, don't do it. There's a ram in the bush. Don't you know that there's a ram in the bush for you, that God has had provision that's available for you? But the way that Abraham was able to understand this is he figured that God would raise his son from the dead. He had a type of faith that would see, I don't know how God's going to work this out, but you're going to work it out somehow because of your promise. You see, the challenge that many of us have is that we can't see where it's going to end up. And so as a result of that, we're not willing to go anywhere. It reminds me of the African Impala. The African Impala is an incredible creature. It can jump and leap up to 10 feet high. It got crazy hops. And 30 feet long. It's a, it's a jumper. And it's an amazing, beautiful creature. And it's one that you can see at your local zoo behind a three-foot wall. Now, how is it? That an animal in the wild who's one of the greatest leapers we've ever seen can jump over 10 feet high, can actually be confined in a three-foot wall. Well, see, this is how. Because an impala will only jump where it can see its feet land. If it can't see where it's landing, then it won't actually take a step of faith and jump. And many of us are like that Impala, that we will be held and confined behind areas, even though God has put in us the ability, the ability to jump over the obstacles that we find in our lives. But because we can't see where it's going to end up and how it's going to end up, we can't play all the angles. We stay confined and in bondage in our own struggles. Can you trust God when you can't see? Can you trust God when you don't know how it's going to end up? That becomes the big rub, and that is what God has for us in living the life of faith. I remember I had to do this once. Uh, my wife and I, we were uh, trusting God for a music ministry, and uh, we had moved to uh, Indiana, to the Midwest, to be part of this, and 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 the in order the band, the people in the band, this was a, a, a ministry opportunity where you had to raise your own finances, and and so folks in the band, some of them hadn't raised all of their support, and now it came to a point where it came down to the last month, and I was looking at my team, and I had to decide the the two folks in the band who were there, what were we going to say? Are we going to work on a plan B right now, or are we going to actually trust God? And we decided to make phone calls on their behalf. We prayed on, their, on the behalf of the three in the band who needed about $12,000 in order to actually report to the assignment and be a part of the band. Well, the money that we raised, it, it, I mean, it didn't really put a, put a dent in that amount. It, it was still too much. And then a couple weeks before the deadline, another person in ministry actually wrote us a check for that money. Because we were willing, they saw the faith that we had, because they saw that we were able to jump when we didn't even know 
where it was going to end up. And that's oftentimes what God is doing in our lives. And that is what this author is writing to Hebrews. And honestly, I wish the book ended here because that would make us feel real good. But the reality is there was more where this thing turned and it takes a turn that we don't necessarily like to read about. In verse 35, it summarizes, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Now, why would they tell this to a group of people who were already experiencing pressure, already experiencing this, this challenge? What, what, what is the point in, in bringing up the fact that some of the people, not everybody who trusted God like Abraham and, and Sarah did, got to see the end result that they were hoping for? Well, he concludes the chapter with the explanation of how that was able to work. In verse 39, he says, And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is amazing. What he's saying is he's rolling back the curtain of heaven and helping them to understand and say, look, that God commended all of the people in this chapter for the faith. The ones that got to see Some of the promise, like Abraham and Sarah got to see Isaac and the others who were tortured and who suffered and who became martyrs for their faith. They all were commended by God, but not all of them got to see. Actually, most of them did not get to see the full extent of their promise and explains why. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. See, God didn't allow Abraham to see all of the children and the children's children and all of them that Isaac, Jacob, and the rest of his seed would have so that Isaac could participate in seeing the process and the activity of God in his life. So Jacob could see the activity of God in his life. So all of those leading up to us would actually be able to look back on that moment and have faith and believe that the same God who did it back then can do it again. The same God who rescued us from slavery can do it again. The same God who rescued us from segregation can do it again. The same God who rescued us from life and death can do it again. And that is the day that they rejoice to see and trust a God for, even if they didn't experience it themselves. Jesus mentions this in John chapter 8, in a verse that will blow your mind. John 8, 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, his audience was immediately confused when he said this because they said, Look, you're not even 50, Jesus. Abraham existed over 1,500 years ago. What do you mean that he rejoiced that he would see your day? How did he do that? And then Jesus explains. He explains with his life, with his death, and with his resurrection. He says, you know, remember, Abraham went and took Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice, believing that God was somehow raised from the dead because God had promised that the nations would be blessed through the seed of Abraham, that the Messiah would come through his lineage. And now here I stand to you, a man who will be carrying his cross up that same mount, up that same place in Jerusalem. And this time with that place that God provided another ram in a bush so that 
Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son. Now he, I am the sacrifice. I am the lamb in the bush so that you do not have to atone for your own sins because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So Abraham rejoiced to see my day and because, because of my day, now all of you can have the faith of trusting in me as the salvation of the world. Oh, it's a good thing when you, by faith, believe. You see, we as a community have been able to see the repercussions and the benefits of this by faith. It didn't just end with Abraham and Sarah, because you see, you realize when you read their story, it gets a little gully in the book of Hebrews, right? Like Abraham, they, they had some fits and starts around the way. They had baby mama drama. They had bad kids and, and disobedient folks that were stealing from each other. I mean, when you read the lives of the patriarchs, it's nothing to look home at and model a family out of. And that's an encouragement to us because one of the pitfalls we have when we read in the scriptures, we put these people up on a pedestal and say, I'm not a hero, so God can't do that to me. These were all very flawed people, but you know what? So are we, and God can still move. And he has moved. And in our community, about six years ago, by faith, James and Natasha Roberson left a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house in Atlanta, Georgia, to come up to New York City where they would experience living in a 600 square feet place and, and, and be challenged by the rigors of, of, a, of a new city where they didn't know anybody, but they trusted that God wanted to do a new thing, a new work in this city where people would be touched and reached with the gospel. And now by faith, five years later, after Bridge Church has started, here we are, two services uh, with over 200 people coming out where we have six city groups throughout the city, 20, 30 leaders. I mean, by faith, we've seen this thing grow. And because of their faith, another couple, James and Josh and Jess Edney, they decided to step up and be a part of this work that God was doing. You see, Josh has a finance degree. He, um, you know, he, he could have been in working at Wall Street. Instead, his passion was to help to see the people of God get out of debt and have financial security. And as a result of his efforts and the workshops that he's led and the ways he's encouraged people and helped develop their budgets, now we see people at Bridge Church have paid $3.1 million off of debt to get out of debt. By faith, two of the people who were in that financial class, Lourdes and Janelle, they have in the last year paid off their student loans. I'm talking over $161,000 that they have been able to pay off. And now they are actually paying it forward and helping other people use the principles that they learned to get out of debt as well. And it doesn't just end with them. By faith, now it's your turn. Put your name in there. What is it that God is calling you to do? What is it the challenge that God is calling you to do? What's your verse that you're adding to the chapter? In order to figure that out, you might need to ask the question, how would you live differently if you did not believe? If you didn't have faith, would your life look any different? If the answer is no, then that means you might not have it now. There was a song that was written years ago by a man named Albert Goodson. Albert had interest in music as a child, as but his parents were too poor to buy a piano, so he would take up a wooden board and pretend to play on it as if it were a keyboard. 
Well, he began to hear music from another church and he started to sneak out of his mom's church and go to this other church and, and hear the music, but he wasn't allowed to do that because he said, hey baby, we gotta go and stay at our church. So, so he would get punished for going out to this other church, but he kept going there and sneaking out the window and, and listening to the music. And eventually, by faith, he began to sing with the group. By faith, they asked him to actually join the choir and actually begin to play for them. And by faith, he began to play with such greats as Mahalia Jackson and Nat King Cole. Well, he decided to move up to Chicago and, and try to take his stab at being a singer, songwriter, and he found himself alone, single, without a relative, without a friend, just completely discouraged. And one day during a depressed state, he began to sit down at a piano's at his friend's house and began to play a melody that was running through his head. And that melody came out and the lyrics just, he said it sounded like as if God was speaking to him in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his struggle. We've come this far by faith, leaning on the Lord, trusting in his holy word. He's never failed me yet. And the interesting thing is he wrote that while he was still going through. Well, it turned out that we've come this far by faith ended up being the song that became the most well-known, most popular song that Goodson ever wrote. It is in the midst of our trials, it's in the midst of our pain, in which God speaks to us by faith. How do we live a life pleasing to God? We do so by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the gift of faith. We ask that you would speak to our hearts right now where we are discouraged, where we are challenged, that you would reveal yourself, that you would uh, just help us to see where we can, uh, where you're challenging us to step out, to take that leap of faith beyond what we can see, but to what you're calling us to. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for helping us come this far by faith. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.